Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Casts, and Overcast. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's www.corvettetodaypodcast.com. Sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. Don't forget, there's a Corvette Today Facebook group. Make sure you join. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, Hendrick Chevrolet of Kansas City. Hendrick is the largest seller of Corvettes in the Kansas City area, and they ship nationwide. Visit ChevyUSA.com or call 913-384-1550. 913-384-1550. Also, MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. If you'd like to join a new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly Corvette community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. My special, special guest on Corvette today has been with General Motors since 1988. He's been the primary influence in the development of Corvette racing since 1996. He's got elected to the National Corvette Museum's most prestigious honor. He's now a member of the Corvette Hall of Fame. He always gives the best presentations. Whether you see him speak at the National Corvette Museum's birthday bash or anywhere else, his high energy, positive attitude, and dynamic personality is absolutely infectious. He's the product manager for Corvette Racing, Mr. Doug Feehan. Doug, welcome to the Corvette Today podcast. Well, thank you. I really relish the opportunity to get out there in these challenging times and touch base with all our fans. That's great. Well, Doug, I wanted to get into this because you've been with Corvette Racing for a long time. Let's talk about the story of the beginning of the C5 racing program because it's a great story. Talk about that and how it got developed. Well, the reality was that the gentleman that was in charge of GM Motorsports at that time was Herb Fischel. He's the guy that hired me back in 1988 to give him some help with the road racing programs that were struggling within GM. And his dream was shared with me, obviously, was uh, to eventually get to Le Mans. And we knew that racing at that particular juncture wasn't a particularly high priority within the corporation. They had other challenges that they were facing, but we still held on to that. It was always something that was in the back of our mind. It was always something we dreamed about. When Herb got wind of the new C5 Corvette, that fifth generation Corvette being developed, he thought that might present a great opportunity for us to look at a racing program that would involve that car, the C5, and with the potential and hopes that we could convince people that we would go eventually to the 24 hours of Le Mans. So that was the conversation as it started. At that point in time, as I recall, was Harry Turner, who was what they called sporty car manager. He was in charge of Corvette and Camaro and Firebird at that time. And I remember uh, Herb sending me over to visit with Harry. Harry took me down to the design studio 
went in and saw Tom Peters and Kirk Benyon, saw what they were doing with the C5. So I get an idea of what we were going to be working with. From there, I went ahead and per Herb's charge, put together what I thought was a reasonable program that would allow us to design and test and develop a race car based on the C5. We would do that for a two-year period, and we would do that clandestinely, okay, not in public, right? which in those days was a lot easier to do than today <laughs> without cell phones and cameras and internet. And then at the end of that two-year period, we would make the determination, A, would the car be competitive racing on a global basis? and be where we would race it because road racing here in the United States was in a state of flux at that point in time. And we presented that program to John Middlebrook, who was the general manager at Chevrolet at the time. And he bought in, although it was a dramatic departure from the way we had done road race programs in the past, which were basically year-to-year programs, you know, marketing-driven programs, not really fully utilized by the brands. This was going to be a dramatic departure from that. And it was because I really felt myself, I felt that this would be a proper way to do a program befitting of the Corvette name, brand, and history. And that's how we got started with it. John Middlebrook loved it. We had everybody there. The product manager, the marketing manager was Dick Allman at the time. He bought into it. Everybody was in the room and and everybody thought it was a great idea. Dave Hill was uh, somewhat skeptical to begin with, but became our biggest champion. He attended all of our weekly planning meetings. He was absolutely 100% involved in what we did. He came to our first race at Daytona. And from that day forward, he was a flag wave and believer to the point where he even had had printed on all his personal stationery that he used inside the corporation, a little byline that said, bring the racing spirit to work. So it was embraced, it was revered, and it was leveraged, I think, not only uh, to create a name and and a history for Corvette, but as an inspiration to all those who work at Chevrolet and General Motors and specifically in the Corvette group. That's wonderful. What a great story. Talk more about that first race, too, Doug, because that was at Daytona, obviously. But tell us how it went. Did you have a podium finish and everything? It was interesting from many different perspectives. We had contracted with Pratt Miller to build the race cars. And at that point in time, Pratt Miller was a very small company. Uh, when we went there, they had eight employees in a redded industrial bay. Wow. But they, yeah, they had a Ford Dooley pickup truck and an old fifth wheel trailer. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, so, some would say, well, why did you go there? Well, in previous times, I knew the two principals. I knew Gary Pratt, and I knew what he brought. Just an absolute fabrication race car builder savant. And Jim Miller, who had, and to this day, is probably the brightest. The level of his business acumen is almost beyond comprehension. This guy knows business, knows how to start them, knows how to run them, and knows how to make them be a success. And has the economic wherewithal to invest, to bring those goals to fruition. And they had teamed up in their little business. I had done some work with them, with the Intrepid, back in 1990 and 91. So I knew what the capabilities were. I had firsthand knowledge of it. And I knew that we could expand this. I saw this as an opportunity not only to take Corvette forward with what I thought was with two best business guys in which to do that, but also it gave us literally free form. I mean, it, it gave us the opportunity with Jim's business expertise to expand this and build this into something that I think we had all hoped would come for Corvette. So that's why we started with Pratt Miller. 
we did the development. We spent the two years developing the car. We decided we were going to race it at Daytona as our debut race, which some thought was crazy, but we had done a tremendous amount of testing. At some point in time, you just have to go racing. And that's how I justified it. And that's how I sold it to our management. We just have to go. There's no better place to do that than a 24-hour race. Exactly right. You're going to find out whatever shortcomings exist in the car, despite the hours and hours and hours of testing that you would have conducted. And so we had two cars we were going to take down there. Well, the Pratt Miller Group was not large enough personnel-wise or equipment-wise to be able to field both cars. So I had also done work with a company, Riley and Scott, Bob Riley, who at one time had worked with Gary Pratt and Jim Miller, okay? They had started their own race car company down in Indianapolis. And essentially, I suppose some could look at it as being a rival to Pratt and Miller, which in a true business sense, they probably were. But I went to my immediate boss at that time was Joe Negri. And I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. We want to take two cars. Pratt Miller doesn't have the wherewithal to do that at this point in time. We haven't built it big enough, fast enough to do that. And that was a good thing, by the way. I'm going to go down and talk to Riley Scott and see if they'll do that. And Joe said, are you crazy? They're competitors. I said, yeah, but I know both of them and they know each other. I think this is a great opportunity for both companies. He said, well, if you think you can do that, go on down. So I went down and I talked to Bill and Bob and Mark Scott. I explained to them what I wanted to do. They kind of looked at each other like, this guy across the table is crazy, <laughs> which, <laughs> which to a certain extent, I mean, I, I guess I am. I'm a free thinker. And they looked at each other and said, yeah, we'd love to do it. So at that first race at Daytona, we had one car that was prepared by Pratt Miller and we had one car that was prepared by Riley and Scott. I thought we had a very successful debut. The Riley and Scott car, and this is no reflection on Riley and Scott, by the way, just the luck of the draw. It had its teething problems that we worked through. We got that thing soldiered right through to the end of the race. The Pratt Miller car had a little better luck. Our chief rival at that point in time, when we knew it was going to be, was the Viper. And Viper had had great success here in the United States and tremendous success over in Europe. And they were a little bit heady about their car. And with justification, it was a dynamite vehicle, it had uber high performance. It had great reliability. They only brought one car. Okay. And early on in the race, early on in a 24 hour race, I don't remember exactly, but probably by hour four, five, six, maybe somewhere in there early on in the race, they had an issue and they dropped out and couldn't finish. Well, guess what? Guess who was right there? Corvettes. And I think we led right up until about the last three or four hours of that race. What had happened in the lead car, all the testing we had done, we had an air filter failure. Ugh. All the testing we had done, Steve, interestingly enough, was with ourselves on the racetrack. Right. Not with 50 or 60 other cars. Well, at Daytona, when you have that many cars on the racetrack, you're stirring up a tremendous amount of dust and sand and debris. And what happened was, is that sand actually blew through over those 20 hours of racing and deteriorated the filter material. So there was no filter material. The engine was ingesting all that sand and dust. And the number eight cylinder, as we finished the race, had no piston rings in it. None. Oh, my gosh. We were dumping oil in that car every two or three laps to keep it going. We ran out of oil. 
we were mobile one was our sponsor we <laughs> ran out of oil oh my god we had to go to our competitors to borrow oil which we were putting in a 5 gallon bucket <laughs> and had a huge funnel that we would stop take the rear hatch off the car take the top off the oil reservoir so a dry sump motor we dump in 10 or 12 quarts and we go out and run for another two or three laps now fortunately for us it was raining at the end of that race so there was no way for any of the officials to really see what was going on that we were <laughs> that we were essentially just road oiling the Daytona Speedway but we got to the end ended up finishing third on that podium a podium finish for our first time out amazing which was a huge achievement for us i'll tell you what, i don't think winning would have created any more joy and jubilation <laughs> and emotion than finishing third that day it it was a great memory by all those who were there, and that included Dave Hill, who watched how we soldiered on, which inspired that bring the racing spirit to work little byline that he used throughout his career. That's amazing. What a great story, Doug. I'm impressed that the competitors donated or gave you oil to finish off the race. The sports car community internally is a very small community. Right. And they understood the value of having a brand like Corvette come to the series and come to the race and have levels of success. You know, it raises all boats. And they knew that. And they were all people that we knew and people that we had raced with for years. So they were more than happy and generous and, and seeing what they could do to get us to the finish line. What a great story. I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break. In segment number two, we're going to talk about Corvette racing in 2020. You're listening to Corvette Today, the podcast. Hey, honey, are you awake? Mm, I am now. I can't sleep. Since turning 50, I keep dreaming of a red door and a blue door, somehow knowing there are only choices for retirement. Okay. Through the red door, we outlive our money. We have to rely on our kids. We're stuck on a fixed income. It's terrifying. Yeah, that would suck. But through the blue door, our money outlives outlives us. We retire on our terms. Our kids stay our kids, not our caretakers. We make work optional. Yes, that's much better. That's what I want too. But what do we do? We call True Wealth and Company at 913-653-8783. They specialize in helping successful people make work optional. They're our fiduciary Blue Door personal wealth managers. Hey, where are you going? It's 3 a.m. I can't sleep. I'm going to check out True Wealth and Company online at retirewithtrue.com. That Blue Door is going to be our retirement. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth and Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. You're listening to the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. My special, special guest today is program manager for Corvette Racing, Doug Feehan. In the second segment here, we're going to talk more about Corvette Racing this year. Doug, Corvette races in IMSA. Let's talk about IMSA and why Corvette races there versus other racing platforms. IMSA has been around for a long time. The brainchild of John Bishop, the people who have been associated with that have been true and diehard race fans. And again, as I said previously, this is a small community of people who make this thing really go. And those that are still active in it, we've known each other for 30, 40 years. There's very few industries, I think, that have that makeup and that foundation. If you check with the drivers who compete and think about this, it's truly an international field of drivers that come here to race in IMSA. The reason is because of the factory support that IMSA has, that the brands have within IMSA, 
whether it be Corvette or Ferrari or BMW or Porsche or when Ford was there in the past. Those are true high caliber, high level factory efforts, which produces the best GT road racing in the world. And you only have to ask those international drivers that compete on several different continents where the best and most challenging and the finest road racing exists, they will tell you IMSA. So that is foundationally because they were the sanctioning body, the lead sanctioning body here in America. That's what first attracted us to is one and two would be the reputation that the management has in delivering a quality product. You look at what John Doonan has done there at IMSA. You look at our TV schedule now, utilizing both uh, NBC Network and NBC Sports Network. Right. Uh, when you look at the viewership, when you look at our growing TV audience, everywhere you look, IMSA is really the place to be at all different levels and from all different perspectives. And that's why we're there. That gives us the exposure and the credibility that we need that we think is befitting the Corvette brand. Let's talk about the race schedule. In a non-pandemic era, what is the Corvette race schedule? Well, it's usually about 10 or 12 races, depending on what the IMSA schedule is. I mean, we always have Le Mans as our cornerstone. Okay. Right. And then in the past couple of years, we've expanded that a little bit to run. We ran in Shanghai a couple of years ago, WEC race. Wow. We ran for a couple of years in the extended WEC race when they combined the race with our Sebring events. So that added a race to our schedule. And we do that to help support the Lamar group, the, the World Endurance Championship group. The ACO has been so warm and welcoming to us over the last 20 years. They look to expand to have, you know, one or two races here in the United States as well, because they know what the U.S. market, the potential the U.S. market has. And so we've accommodated that and working together with them, we've added those one or two races a year. And then the normal IMSA schedule, you know, we'll start out at Daytona and then we go to Sebring. We have a couple races on the West Coast with Long Beach and Laguna. We have raced in the past down at Coda. We race in Virginia. The Florida events. Watkins Glen is a huge race for us. Mid-Ohio was added to the schedule a couple of years back. At the end of the day, in a non-pandemic year, that would be probably 11 or 12 events that we would run in. Very nice. Let's talk about your crew. You have a phenomenal crew and a phenomenal set of drivers, and your crew chief just retired, true? Dan Binks, who had, who had been with us for a long, long time, I'd have to go back and actually count the years, did retire this year. When we look at our crew, I think Dan was indicative of one of our key elements to our success, which is continuity. Once you become a member of the Corvette team, you I mean, you're always a member of the Corvette team is what we like to say. But when you look at the crew guys that are there, very few race teams actually have crew guys and drivers that age out. <laughs> okay? Yeah. I mean, this is a business where you work at a place for two or three years, then you move to another team or you move to another series. Right. Has not been the case for Corvette Racing. This is a very physical and demanding business, trackside, okay? Absolutely right. And guys have come to the realization that when you're trying to run a eight-second tire change and you're 48 years old <laughs> and enjoy fine meals at some of the best restaurants in America, that maybe, that maybe you're not performing at the level of the competition. And we joke about it. We laugh about it. But, I mean, that's how it rolls. And so over time, obviously, we've had a continuous influx of new young talent. 
people who have kids who have dreamed about being on the Corvette race team that have moved through the process. It's been fun to watch that. And we joke about it every day. And most of those guys, by the way, if they have not retired, just general retirement, like Dan has just done, still take on other positions back in the shop. They're still working on the race cars. They're still working in the race program. They're still working in our transportation department. They're still there. They're just behind the scenes now. And we've turned the reins of that hard work over to the younger guys who I know are looking at planning the next 10, 15, 20 years participating in the Corvette race program. It's been fun to watch. It's fun for the guys who have graduated. That's how I refer to it. Right. It's fun for them to watch it. And, and the most rewarding thing is seeing the new young guys come on with their energy and spirit and wide eyes and, and watching them experience competition at the highest level and then obviously uh, enjoying the fruits of victory. Talk about the drivers as well real quick. You've got a great set of drivers. We do. And there's no greater example. I mean, I can tell you this. I'm going to say this without doing any research. I don't think any team in history has had the continuity of drivers that we've had in Corvette racing, whether it's Ron Fellows or Johnny O'Connell, most recently, Ann Magnuson, Oliver Gavin. I mean, these guys are there 15, 16, 17 years with the same race team. That's unprecedented in sports car racing. Yes. Just unprecedented. Oliver Gavin has 50 or 51 victories, which is a tremendous career for anyone to accumulate. He's done all that with Corvette, just with Corvette, with one team. That's incredible. It is just amazing. But as a key element, as a cornerstone, I believe in our success. When drivers know that they have a job and they know that every lap isn't going to be looked at as a tryout, <laughs> okay? Yes, yes. That you can focus on doing your job without having that doubt hang over your head that I hope I'm coming back next year kind of thing. Right. I think that's very contagious. And I think that's the same for the crew guys. I think they, they can relate to the longevity of the program and they have confidence that, that the program is going to continue. That makes you very content and allows you to focus on your job and not have all those extraneous mental challenges that most teams face. I think it's been a huge portion of why we've been successful. And obviously, if you make good choices going in, if you make good choices amongst your drivers, there's no reason to have to look for new ones. I mean, there just isn't. And these guys know that as well. And they know how to conduct themselves on and off the racetrack. They engage well with our race fans. A driver at Corvette, all half his job is driving the car. The other half is dealing with the madmen and women that comprise the Corvette community. Okay. <laughs> as, as I say to them all, in our world, you better be prepared to become a rock star because our fan base is going to be all over you. Because they love you, they cherish you, they revere you, they watch your every move, they're, they're proud of you. I said, this is going to put you in a social environment of which you've never experienced. They've all come to embrace it, enjoy it, and love it, and I think our fans all love them. And uh, Again, I think all those things play a role in our success. Absolutely right. Speaking of Lamont, let's talk about Lamont for just a little bit because it's a different animal versus IMSA racing. Talk about the differences between the two and how the Corvette race team approaches Lamont. Obviously, Lamont is globally recognized, much like the 24 hours of Daytona. Right. But Lamont has been around for a long, long time, and it's European, so it has a little different air to it. From the standpoint of why it's different for us, think about this. I mean, we've got to load up 20 tons of equipment a month ahead of time. Our first shipment of Lamont stuff goes out the end of April for a June race. Wow. So back at the shop, we have to have designated containers, designated equipment, stuff that all has to be prepared, reconfigured, redesigned, packed up, shipped over, then brought to the racetrack. 
than our guys. You're going to a country where you don't speak the language. Right. Where the food is different. The customs are different. Everything is different. I'm over there for almost 30 days. The guys are over there for 24, 25 straight days. Now, you're there without your wife, without your girlfriend, without your mom, without your dad, without your pets, without your neighbors, without your friends, in a strange country, eating strange food, okay? (laughs) Dude, that's a huge challenge. It is. That would be a huge challenge for three days. But for 24, 25 days, that's what makes this race, at least part of what makes this race so different, aside from its world stature. Okay. Right. And the importance of what you're doing over there. As I told the guys early on, every time we go out and race this car, we're writing a page in history. Long after we're gone, people are going to be able to go back, read words, and see photographs of what we do here at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Really, for you, it's not the 24 hours, it's the 24 days of Le Mans. Yeah. And we do that every year. Yes. And we do hold the record. I mean, unfortunately, Unfortunately, and we can talk about this, we're not going to be able to attend this year. Right. But we were there for 20 consecutive years. Same team, same car, same brand. No one in the history of that storied race can say that. So we hold a very unique position in the annals of Lamar history, of which we're very proud of that. And very, very disappointed this year that we're not going to be able to attend. I can't tell you how devastating it is. As difficult as a decision was to make, it was pretty clear cut as to why we had to make it when we looked at how the scheduling was taking place. It's logistically impossible for us to compete. And on top of that, you had COVID as well, which if you even thought there was a way logistically you could make it happen, the testing you have to go through, the quarantining you have to go through, it can't happen. It's a lot. It really is. Yeah. We're going to take another break, but coming up in segment three, we're going to talk about the race cars themselves in Corvette racing. You're listening to Corvette Today. Vetfinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website, with classified ads starting at just $25, and every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, Vetfinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit Vetfinders.com. The Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E Finders.com. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Thanks for listening to Corvette Today. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. We have with us today the man of Corvette Racing, the product manager for Corvette Racing, Doug Feehan. In this third segment, we're going to talk about the race cars, which is obviously the big thing as well. Doug, let's talk about the new C8R because that's very significant given a brand new mid-engine platform. Talk about the transition from the C7R, which was a wonderful machine, into the C8R. We could have six podcasts talking about (laughs) the development of the C8, okay? Right, And I'm sure going forward, we'll probably touch on the high points. Yes. But I think when we talk about the actual transition, from a racing perspective, I mean, obviously, the transition is seamless. You go to the racetrack, you unload the race car, you do your prep work, you enter the race, you keep your fingers crossed, you do a good job, don't hit anything, don't break anything, keep it on the racetrack, (laughs) and you wait for the checkered flag to drop, all right? Right. And you hope you did a good enough job to finish on a podium. Or come away with a victory. So that transition in and of itself, it's painting with a broad brush, no real difference. All right. I think when you do the deep dive in it, though, I think you have to understand the background. 
the transition was marked by the fact that not only over the last couple of years were we racing, competing for, and defending championships with the C7R, but those very same people were building and testing the C8. Those very same guys. It wasn't a separate group. It was those same people. Both of those tasks, racing being one, building and developing being two, is a full-time job. So how do you do two full-time jobs simultaneously with the same people? That's a testament going back to the crew. They were so dedicated, so excited, and so committed to be part of the C8 program. I mean, we worked endless hours, endless days, endless weeks, endless nights in order to get all that done. That was the tough transition. So this year, when we were able to debut the car, I mean, that's a huge load off because no longer do we have to race the C7 and while we were developing the C8, now we could focus full effort on just C8. And we knew that in racing the C8, we were also going to be doing developing with it. We we're going to do it at the same time. You can test for 10 years and still be able to learn things when you go racing. Racing provides you an environment, a high-intensity learning environment. So that was the thing we looked forward to in the transition. We looked forward to getting the C8 on the racetrack. Talk about the significance of a mid-engine platform, because there's big differences in upgrades with going from a front-engine mid-engine to a rear mid-engine platform. Yeah, it has its challenges. The benefits are great, all right? Tagging Company had realized that the front-engine platform was developed as far as they could possibly take it from a true performance standpoint. I mean, you only have to look at the difference between a Z06 and ZR1 you know, maybe a tenth of a second faster in acceleration, virtually the same on-track performance. So, I mean, you add 100 horsepower and the car doesn't go any faster. <laughs> you know you're at the end of that life cycle. Right. And that's where they were. Nothing you couldn't have continued with it and still made it. You could build that forever. You didn't need to go to 1,000 horsepower. I mean, you could have still done that. But the mid-engine platform provides you with an endless array of opportunities in which to develop a better, faster, stronger sports car. We were very excited about that. You know, when we look at specifically what that does, you have a little different weight bias. You know, instead of a 50-50 weight bias in front engine, you're back to about a 60-40 weight bias. Sure. Which allows you some distinct handling characteristics from acceleration rates, all right? Traction in wet weather is better. Part of the challenge with that is it's a more difficult car on which to work than the C7, all right? We had engine changes down in the C7 to about, I think at some point in time, the guys did it in 40 or 45 minutes. Wow. That's the ease of a front engine car. Yes. In a mid-engine car, it's a couple of hours to get that same thing done. Yikes. Yeah. And because of the packaging that goes on in that vehicle, at the back of that vehicle, you've got the gearbox, you've now got the engine, you've got cooling. You have to develop a whole new set of what I call work systems as to how you approach servicing the car. You know, we had C7 down. I mean, we knew if we had to replace a rear half shaft, we knew exactly what we had to do. We knew exactly how long it was going to take. You could easily access everything. Right, right. Well, all those lessons learned that we had for all those years in that front engine platform, now we're writing a whole new book. We're going to learn how we service this mid-engine car. We learn how we have the most effective and time-efficient way of replacing a half-shaft. And we go back after every race having learned something on how we can simplify the car. That's the biggest challenge is how we work on the race car. 
The other thing is that from the very beginning, the engineering group, I mean, you always try and lightweight your car. Sure. But now we had a clean sheet of paper and we could start from scratch. And so here's how you do it. You build it as light as you think you can do it Mm -hmm. and you run it till it breaks. And then you realize you got to make that part bigger, stronger, heavier. Okay. Yes. And so we spent a couple of years doing just that. Well, we're going to be doing that same thing in racing. The C7 was a tank. You could not hurt that car. Okay. You just couldn't. And our fans witnessed that race after race after race of the car being what looked like totally destroyed, come back in in eight minutes. The guys had it all bolted back together. We were out competing and going on and winning races. The C8, because of that configuration with all the cooling that needs to be in the front, for any number of reasons, that same level of tank-like performance is not going to exist. It doesn't exist in any mid-engine car. Right. So the drivers know that, so they have to be more respectful of that. They have to be a little bit more careful on the racetrack, mm-hmm. which they've been. Yeah. And the crew guys have learned to look. Their level of inspection on the car is different. Very many different aspects of what's going on inside the race car. That's a whole learning process. So we're not even close to having this thing mastered. The amount of information we glean at each race event and coming back and making improvements and re-engineering and rebuilding and redesigning, that's going to be a continuous process for a while. And we look forward to that challenge. The guys love that. The guys love that because it gives them a chance to think about what's going on inside there. How can we make this better? When you can get that kind of participation and input from your crew people, that makes them feel as though they're an integral part of the team. It, It builds that team spirit. I really enjoy seeing that myself. I think that's another thing that's made us so successful is how everybody plays a significant role in how we succeed. You know, with all that being said, Doug, did you guys have any reservations going to a mid-engine platform? None whatsoever. I mean, we knew that that was going to be our next big step forward from performance. And by the way, none of our competitors are sitting back while we're doing all this, okay? I mean, you saw what Porsche did. Right. To change their production rear-engine car to a mid-engine car. Well, there's a reason they did that, okay? (laughs) Now, they haven't done it in production yet for some reason, but there's a reason they did that. You know, you look at, at the success that Ford had. You look at the success that Ferrari has. We were excited to get there. Because number one, it represented what we knew the world would perceive as a huge challenge. But we also knew that our fans and customers, those two words are interchangeable, by the way, in Corvette. Right. Our fans and our customers were looking for us to go there. You know, we've been building a mid-engine Corvette since about 1986. Right. Right. You look at all the rumors and test cars and prototypes. And, you know, that was Zora's dream to have a mid-engine car. Absolutely was. And the C8 got us there. So, no, we had no real concerns about it. Even though we knew it was going to be a huge workload, we looked at it as really exciting times. We were excited to have it come along. These are exciting times for Corvette. This car has been 60 years in the making, and it's a wonderful platform. I couldn't be more thrilled to have a mid-engine Corvette. Talk about the team's collaboration with Taj Jukter and the Corvette team in developing the streetcar, because so much of Corvette racing goes into the regular cars. Technology transfer. You know, I've had the honor of working directly with every chief engineer on Corvette, with the exception of Zora. Zora left before I got there. Amazing. And from the beginning of the program, the concept was to utilize racing as a technological platform from which we could learn and then implement back into the production car. And not just simply with Corvette. I mean, with all GM products. 
We happen to be using Corvette, but when you think about it in broader terms, whether it's materials or aerodynamics, or in some cases with our associations with Mobile One and lubricants, or our tire development with Michelin, all those things can be implemented throughout a wide range of vehicles. It doesn't have to be limited just to the Corvette. But Corvette being the tip of the technological spirit, GM being the halo car, it could be the guy that goes out there and does all the learning and then brings that back. Every chief engineer I worked with understood the value in that. Now, there are a lot of ramifications. It's easy to say. It's not that easy to implement, all right, because there's a lot of extraneous forces that are placed upon these chief engineers, whether it's economics, the bean counters, government regulations. Right. There's so many different things. It's not as easy as people think. But each chief engineer, whether it was Dave Hill who spearheaded this, but Taj had, because he's been there at Corvette for so long, he watched all this happen. He knew the value in it. He learned those lessons from what we picked up in previous administrations. And so when it got to be his turn and he got tagged with developing C8, now we're talking clean sheet of paper, radical departure from where we had been before. He saw this as the opportunity to really take a giant step forward in this text transfer deal. And I have to say, he was yeoman. It did not go without some resistance from those outside elements that I mentioned. But Tad stuck to his guns. From day one, clean sheet of paper, the race team has been involved with the production team to develop the C8 race car. And Tad just didn't, like, welcome it, okay? He realized that it needed to be a part of the program, that it needed to be embraced, that it had to be an integral player in what we were doing. And that level of insight that Taj had is largely responsible for what he's built in that C8 road car with the participation and expertise that the race team brought in the history that they have and the technological learnings that they have in materials and design and aerodynamics and mechanics. It was a joy to watch that collaboration develop and build that car. And that's why, as a customer, when you get a C8, you're getting as close to the thing as you get to a race car. It's really huge. That's the cool thing about Corvette. I have a C7, and I love the input that Corvette Racing has on that street car. The lean forward radiator. People look at that and say, well, hold it. Why is your radiator angled forward? I said, that's from Corvette Racing. Yeah. It's so cool because a part of Corvette Racing is in every street car, yeah. and that makes it special. Well, you look at C7. I mean, you look at the radiator, that waterfall hood. That's all the aerodynamics, the flat bottom on the car. Right. It goes on and on and on. The materials. Look at all the light weighting that's in the bodywork of the C7 and now taken forward in the C8. Those are learnings that can be spread out across an entire corporation doesn't have to be limited just to Corvette. You know, when you look at the chassis structure of the Corvette, the thin wall, high pressure aluminum castings, the method of weldment, the utilization of space age adhesives and bonding that chassis together. I mean, those are all processes that have value from a Chevy Bolt up to a Silverado pickup truck. They're not limited just to Corvette. Tedge recognized that. Tedge is a quintessential engineer. His wealth of knowledge into every part and piece that goes into that car is staggering. It was a joy to work with him. I know our team feels that way. And it was really rewarding to see what he and his group have produced as a road car.
is just a tremendous accomplishment. And by the way, I think the media and the jaundiced motorsports press and the jaundiced hot rod press have finally come together to recognize what he has done and what General Motors has achieved in its mindset to build the world's greatest sports car. That's absolutely true. And that's an outstanding answer. Put on your forward-looking glasses, Doug. What is the outlook for Corvette racing moving forward? You know, I have always used my own personal mantra that as long as we're building a Corvette, we ought to be racing it. In a world at GM where road racing was not highly revered and where programs ran year to year, I'd have to do the math. This is a program that was birthed in 1996, and we're still racing it here in 2020. So that's 24 consecutive years of the corporation being committed to it. And when we look at our leadership, Mark Royce, Jim Campbell, Mark Kent, These are the guys who have waved the flag for Corvette. These are the guys who, during some of the darkest hours at General Motors, these are the guys, those three guys championed this car and this program because they recognized the value that it brought and not just selling Corvettes, but the value that it brought to the corporation. They ushered us through times which we hope we never have to endure again. But that's the commitment that those three gentlemen have brought. And when you have that to back you up, there's just no reason to even think about not racing a Corvette. Like I said, it's as long as we're building it, we ought to be racing it. And that's the designs of our leadership. Here, here. Doug, it has been a true honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for your time on being on Corvette today. Steve, I've enjoyed it. I think you can tell and those who know me know that Corvette is a passion for me. It's what drives me every single day. Being associated with the people is a very rewarding experience. Obviously, checkered flag and winning races is our goal and is our objective. And in the broader brush, we like representing Corvette. We like representing Chevrolet and General Motors as a corporation. And we're very proud to be associated with them, and we hope it continues for a long, long time. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Doug Feehan, the product manager for Corvette Racing. Thanks once again to our flagship sponsors of Corvette today, Hendrick Chevrolet at ChevyUSA.com and MidEngineCorvetteForum.com. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.